Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Cricket Scorers Untallied. I'm Brian Rodwell and I'm joined as always by Julia Farman. Hello. And Sue Drinkwater. Hello. So another week has passed with uh, variable weather as we all, all us cricket scorers have uh, noticed. Mm. So what have people been up to this week? Shivering. Shivering <laughs> while scoring. It was the most unseasonable weather yesterday in the UK. So it's like 17 degrees and trying to score when it's 17 degrees and you've got your pen and your hands shaking and it's like, oh, I can't click the buttons. But it was nice to be scoring still, so I can't complain. And that was just for old Wimbledonians. I say just for old Wimbledonians, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Nothing as glamorous as uh, the big wide world of uh, sort of Lords or county scoring or anything like that. <laughs> but but just as valuable. Oh, absolutely. And you, Sue? Oh, well, um, I did have a counter game, sorry. Um, but it was the return of uh, the T20 Blast. So great excitement, um, which seemed really, really odd in an empty stadium. Um, so I scored at New Road yesterday for Worcestershire against Northants. Um, probably shouldn't mention the result because we got absolutely um, annihilated. Um, uh so it was a very good batting display from Northants, I'll have to say. Interestingly, um, somebody put the ball out of the ground. So that was that one. That was gone out into the public wide world. Can't get that one back. Um, that vector uh, of disease is going to be spreading COVID <laughs> all round. <laughs> but it, it was odd to sort of on two counts, really, because there was, in, in when Northants were batting, they did put the ball outside the boundary rather a lot. And, of course, nobody could then go and get it back. It had to be the fielders every time. Um, but it did seem really quiet without all the hype that normally goes with T20. Now, I don't normally like music to be played. I just like my cricket to be cricket. But I think for some of the players, it did seem really, really sort of quiet. Um, and I know that they played the music properly at um, Bristol. Gloucestershire were playing the, a home game at Bristol and they had all the music. They had the normal man in to do all the music. Um, uh, even they got Sweet Caroline at, at about 15 overs, um, <laughs> which I guess helped the players to settle in and think it was like normal. But I don't know. I don't know. They did the same at the Oval today. So Mark's been down there. He was doing his DJ Mark impression and uh, he was doing stuff with the music and they definitely had the music going on. And I think it just makes it that air of normality, doesn't it? I think to have it around. Yeah. Um, so Brian, I believe you've been back to T20 as well recently. Indeed. Yes. Uh, I was at Lords yesterday um, operating the scoreboards there, which was uh, very exciting. Felt a little strange going back there. Yeah. But very good to be back there, I have to say. So, um, yes, a, a locked down Lords. And so what was that like in the score box? Um, it was very good, actually. Um, the score box at Lords is quite big anyway. So there's plastic screens set up to separate people away. And where normally you couldn't get 11 or 12 people in the score box, that's now reduced to five. Wow. So you've got double spaced, essentially. So it, it it was good, and, and as you say, Sue, it's very strange to have a T Twenty without uh, without any music, or as or as one particular person in that score box always refers to him as as a Mister Shouty, um, oh, yeah. not being on the microphone. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was definitely quiet, no music at all. We could hear was applause from the applause from the players, um, and funny enough, 
the strangest thing was no boundary cushions for for a game. So it was just a, just a rope, which looked strangely strangely odd, if if I must be honest. Yeah. But uh, an exciting game. So a very exciting game. A tie. So two hundred nine each. Wow, you've got to hope the scorer's got that right then. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the pressure was on, uh, well, m- myself was actually doing the scoreboard uh, entry yesterday. So oh. thankfully, no mishaps, which is all good. So, and I think, I think we saw the first, one of the first changes in the regulations about penalty runs in the T20 Blast this year. Oh. Uh, whereas normally, if you don't bowl your overs in time, you get penalised six runs, but now you lose that lose the privilege of having one fielder outside the ring for every over you are short. Was that announced in any way? Because as a scorer, you used to get told because you had to put it on the board. So, so the umpires would come on the radio and tell you that that they were behind the the over rate and to add that on. Did you get any announcement about the change of field? No, nothing. But I'm guessing that's because there is no implication for a scorer or a scoreboard operator. Could argue that it's um, something that should be noted, maybe, in uh, in an innings. Yeah. And I, normally, um, an announcer would tell the crowd what was going on. Um, so I guess they would need to be told that because... It would be of interest to the crowd to know, you know, why have they suddenly had to bring a fielder up? Absolutely, yeah. No announcer either at Lords yesterday. No. I've got a big question about Lords. Was mm. Pinky the Panther there? No. Oh. No mascot either. No mascot. No mascot yes. either. Maybe he's um, shielding for someone. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Panther. <laughs> <laughs> So did you all have to like have temperature checks and, and so forth before you went in? Absolutely, yes. Temperature check, um, check-in uh, via an app on the phone, uh, medical questionnaire right. uh, before you're allowed uh, allowed to go to the score box. So, but it was all seamless and all, all good. Very well organised, I have to say. Good to be back there. Excellent. <laughs> and from our discussions last week, I understand we've had some correspondence in about private grounds. Jules? Yeah, we certainly have. So Paul Stubbs has written in um, and he has sent us two lovely pictures of cricket pavilions and scoreboards. And the first one is from the Royal Household uh, Cricket Ground, which is in the grounds of Windsor Castle. So that looks Mm. absolutely bonny. Uh, I think it's just down the hill from the actual castle itself. I know of a fellow scorer who's sadly no longer with us, uh, John Goodman, was chatting to him and he said he's played there once as the visiting scorer and after lunch they were told very quickly to line up outside the pavilion and Queen and Prince Philip just turned up and uh, had a wander around and just wanted to look look at the cricket because Prince Philip, of course, is very into his cricket. Well, so. I can I can add to to a story like that because we have a... Uh, a private ground um, in Gloucestershire called Stoll Park, which belongs to Lord Vesty. They take a team from Stoll Park to play the Royal Household um, in Windsor every year. And um, my club ground, my old club ground, Chedworth, was like the neighbouring club for, for Stoll Park. And, and 
we always sort of helped each other out. The players sort of play for both sides. Uh, and so for a couple of years, my husband uh, played in the Stoll Park team that, that played um, against the Royal Household. And um, they were told one, one time, look under that tree over there, look who's watching. And there was the Queen watching them play cricket. So that was his claim to fame that the Queen's watched him bat. <laughs> <laughs> Was was she impressed? <laughs> oh, I don't think I don't think we ever found that out. <laughs> and the second one is one I, I say I've not heard of. I don't know if anyone else has. It's called Follies Farm in Chiddingford, Surrey, which is home of the Follies Farm Old Spots, um, and the clubhouse is modelled on a barn. Uh, to keep in keeping with the rest of the buildings around it. And there's a tree on the boundary. Um, and the local rule is a boundary four if the ball touches any part of the tree or the branches. Uh, so if a batsman hits the ball high and it strikes one of the branches, it's a four and not a six. Oh, ah, hello. And he's actually scoring there by the looks of it, today, on the 30th of August, which is when we're recording this. Um, so hopefully we'll hear from Paul how it went. Mm. Now, here's a question. The tree at Canterbury, is that a four or six if you hit it? Uh, well, the tree, the tree at Canterbury is the, the old lime tree. That's a very good question. I can't think of the big old lime tree which blew down or was taken down in the 90s, he says, hopefully. Um I'm not sure. I'm, perf- I'm not sure. I think it might have been four if you hit the tree, but I'm sure our, our listeners will correct us. Carl Hooper famously managed to hit one over the top of the lime tree, the old lime tree at, at Canterbury, which for those of you who haven't seen or don't remember that down there, it's a very big hit. Yeah. Very big hit. Yeah. The, the, Did it hit the road? No, no, it didn't oh. hit the road. But unfortunately, the, the, the replacement lime tree, which was planted as some say controversially unfortunately is no more with the building works that have gone on there the lime tree still exists but it's never within the field of play anymore oh, i'm intrigued now to know what they do at canterbury because there is a ground in dulwich so the dulwich sports ground i'll tell you what there have got to be about 101 cricket pitches in dulwich it's like yes, you drive to one, and there's another one and there's another free round of the field you're like where the hell am i going here but there's one pitch which I mean, we didn't quite know what the local rules were and it's quite away from the clubhouse. And I was there with a couple of lads, to be fair, um, they were um, from Afghanistan, so they were massive into their sixes. Um, and the, the uh, ball, the first ball that won the lads face uh, last year, and actually the same thing happened this year, literally straight back over the bowler's head, hit the top of the tree and kind of bobbled its way down. And there was a big debate with the person scoring as to what it would be. Um, and it was all rather easily sold when he was surrounded by a bunch of lads originally, mainly from Afghanistan, going, Shpikisha, Shpikisha at him, which then loosely translated into, it has to be a six, because <laughs> um, it was so big, it could only be a six. Why would you have it as a four? So that was how they created the local rule for the Dodge Sports Ground. And then what's have been subsequently for this competition that they competed. So I'm not sure if players should be starting to dictate, but because they were so excited by this ball going miles and shouting Pashtu, which obviously no one understood until they translated, uh, that's how the the rule was made. It sounds like the uh, Afghanistan players in that game sort of made their own regulations and uh, put the umpires under some friendly pressure, shall we say. Um, Earlier on, Sue Drinkwater caught up with David Kendix who 
is in charge, amongst other things, of writing regulations um, for international games and county games, as well as doing stats for the ICC. And he talks about DLS and anti-corruption. So today on Cricket Scorers and Talid, I'm talking to David Kendex. David, could you just please introduce yourself and tell our listeners how you are connected to cricket? <laughs> Briefly. <laughs> oh, I'm connected to cricket in all sorts of ways. Let me uh, run through a, a few of them. Um, I'm a scorer. I first scored first-class cricket in 1989 for Middlesex. And since 1995, I've scored the international matches at Lord's which is obviously a great place to watch and to score cricket. So I've had uh, 25 years as an international scorer. Um, I'm also the treasurer of Middlesex, so I look after the the money as as well as counting the runs. Since 2007, I've been on the ICC's cricket committee, and I'm sure we'll talk more about what that entails later on. I've worked with the ECB and the ICC for many years, drafting playing regulations. And again, I imagine we'll, we'll cover that later. And I'm also president of the Association of Cricket Statisticians and Historians, which has nearly a thousand members around the world who are dedicated to determining and preserving the integrity and the accuracy of cricket statistics. So these are the various ways in which I keep myself busy in the cricketing sense. Um, but this is all, these are all hobbies. Uh, I have a, a normal office day job and, and therefore cricket is the love of my life, but it's not actually my career. Excellent. Like many of us that, that, that uh, do it for the love of it. So um, I believe that you are involved in the calculation of player and team rankings. Is that correct? Actually, it's just the team rankings. Uh, somebody else does the player rankings. Um, I've been doing that for nearly 18 years now. It started back in 2002 when the ICC decided they wanted to have an official set of team rankings. And it's quite difficult to do rankings when you don't have a regular fixture list. If you think of a football season, everyone plays everybody else Mm. over the course of a season. So it's easy to do a league table and you know where everybody is ranked. But with cricket, you have some teams who don't play each other at all, perhaps for economic or political reasons. You have some who play each other very frequently. You have very different lengths series. So it's not actually that easy to confidently say who is number one or who is number two in the world at any point in time. But ICC decided they wanted to have an official set of rankings and they asked me back in 2002 to have a go at trying to devise such a system. Uh, This I did and in October 2002 the world ODI rankings were launched and then in May 2003 the the test rankings were launched Uh, and then eight years later once the format had become established the T20 rankings followed. Uh, These were all men's rankings and then soon afterwards we expanded it to cover women's ODI and T20 rankings. So there are now five global ranking systems in the game which I maintain and Um, What I like about it, and I think it's been successful, is that it gives a context so that you can say the team that is number one in the world is playing the team that's number three, and any country can see how they're improving by looking at the rankings. And this is something that just wasn't around 20 years ago. 
And when England reached number one in the world, you may remember a few years ago, it was a, quite a lot of publicity about England becoming world number one. And I like that because that was something that was only possible because there was an official ranking system. Otherwise, people would have just said, well, England are, have had a good two or three years and they seem to have been doing well recently. But now you can definitively say who is number one and you can have a trophy and you can have prize money. Now, my job is to maintain those rankings. I devised them originally and now I, I keep them up to date. Um, every year I update the rankings in order to get rid of older results that are no, no longer relevant and I change the weightings of some earlier matches in order to keep it topical because matches all played a long time ago really shouldn't be playing a significant part in determining who's the best team in the world now. So there's this annual update process where greater weightings are given to more recent results. So I do that once a year and then add in the matches as they're being played. A uh, couple of years ago, ICC decided to extend T20 international status to all their members. That's something like 105, 106 countries. And what this means now is that the men's T20 rankings contain something like 90 teams that are ranked and the women's have got about 70 ranked teams. And this is great in terms of globalising the uh, awareness of the game because countries that most people don't think of as playing cricket can now identify themselves. You can look at a country, Belgium, Malawi, whatever, and say, look, they were 70th and now they're 60th mm. and they're progressing and they want to get into the top 50. And this actually gives a, a far higher profile to a number of teams around the world mm. and they can see where, th where they're getting, uh, make, whether they're making progress. And I think this does a lot to raise the profile of cricket beyond the traditional countries where everyone already knows that cricket is played. So do you have to do all those statistics by hand? Do you get the results of all those matches or is it just up to you to go look for them and, and update your information? Fortunately, I don't have to trawl the world to find out results of T20 matches. These are all collated by the ICC uh, and I then take that official source of results and input them into the model and that way we make sure that the results remain up to date and the rankings can reflect all the internationals that are being played around the world. So you've already said about um, writing match regulations as well for the ICC. Just the scoring regulations or all parts of the regulations? Pretty much all parts of the playing regulations, uh, not just those that affect scoring. This started in the early 90s when I was scoring for Middlesex. I was looking at the regulations that were relevant to county cricket and spotted a few anomalies. There were something in one paragraph that didn't quite reconcile with another paragraph in terms of time of the T interval or number of overs remaining and so on. And I remember I went to the ECB um, and said, this doesn't quite look right, um, what's the right answer? And they said, well, okay, you like scrutinising regulations so much, why don't you do it? It's not a particularly glamorous job to draft playing regulations and they seem to think that I was someone who would uh, be keen to do it so uh, I've done it ever since so that's coming on for 30 years now I've been having an involvement in drafting playing regulations for the ECB and I've done a similar job for the ICC since about 2004. Normally updating regulations just means tweaking them, changing odd details, over rates, fielding restrictions and so on but occasionally something completely new comes up and that's far more interesting where it's not just a case of updating it's something that you have a blank sheet of paper you think well how are you going to do this and um, the best example of that 
was the introduction of DRS, the Decision Review System. Oh. Now, we'd agreed that we wanted to use technology to improve the quality of umpiring decisions, but this intention needed to be converted into a set of regulations that the players, the umpires, referee, media, spectators, everyone could know what the process was. Mm. So I had the interesting job of sitting with a blank sheet of paper and saying, okay, how should DRS work in practice? What are the detailed processes that define the mechanism for reviewing decisions? So that was a good example of something that doesn't happen that often, which is a completely new regulation. A lot of other stuff that I do is more like tinkering. It's stuff around fielding restrictions and power plays, net mm. run rate definitions, uh, timings of lunch and tea interval. <laughs> For example, if you're nine wickets down, do you delay lunch or tea? Or if you nearly won the match, do you stay on for a bit longer rather than take a 40-minute break and then come back for a couple more overs? So a lot of the regulations are about just keeping them sensible. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people say, this is a silly regulation, why don't you change it? So we try to make them more sensible. But it's better, actually, to preempt those sorts of things, to notice in advance that there's something that's not quite right and close a loophole before it's exploited. Uh, I, mean, I can give an example from long before I was involved. It was way back in 1979. There was a, a match in which Somerset, a one-day game in which Somerset declared their innings closed. Now, they did this knowing they'd lose the game, but they lost the game but without damaging their strike rate and therefore they still qualified for the next round of the competition. Now, this wasn't against the rules at the time, but nevertheless they were still expelled from the competition. Now, once that had happened, the regulations were changed to say that you're not allowed to declare your innings closed in limited overs cricket, and that's now a standard part of the regulations. But ideally, if someone had noticed this at the time, it would never have been an issue because you'd have known that a declaration wasn't allowed. So yeah. what I sometimes try to do is think of things that might happen and ensure the regulations are there rather than leave the game exposed when something gets exploited later must be very difficult, though, to try and preempt what could happen because there, there's such a vast array of things that, that could, scenarios that you, that you haven't thought of that could happen one day. But Yes, you're right. You can't think of every possible scenario, but you try to work out what might happen, even if it seems very unlikely. And I can give you one example. Um, you need a way of knowing what to do if there is a tie in a one-day international, but you need to have a winner such as a, a semi-final or a final of a competition. So we created the one over per side, uh, the super over. So we have a series of regulations that define how the super over works in great detail, who bats first and the, all the rules about the number of wickets and so on. But then you say, well, suppose the super over is tied as well. I mean, this is obviously highly unlikely it would ever happen. So we then needed to come up with a tiebreaker for what happens if the initial match and the super over is tied. And we came up with something way back in 2008 that defined what happens in that case, which was there was a tiebreaker based on number of boundaries struck. Now, uh, I don't suppose anyone particularly paid much notice to that uh, definition at the time. But then, strangely, 11 years later, I was scoring a World Cup final at Lords, and that's exactly what happened. I get a call <laughs> from the third umpire who says, how many boundaries have been struck by each team in case the super over is tied. I look at the regulation and I have a sense of deja vu, something I drafted 11 years earlier. And then, of course, that's exactly what happened. And England won the World Cup on number of boundaries struck. So whether or not you think that was a good tiebreaker or not, 
the important thing was it had been drafted, it was spelled out, it was unambiguous, mm -hmm. and therefore we weren't in the position of not knowing what to do because the regulations did define it. So what else do you do uh, working for the ICC? The main thing I do for the ICC, apart from maintain the rankings, is to help ensure that decisions that are taken are based on statistical facts rather than just people's memories or their opinions. Mm. So I think that's why originally I joined the ICC Cricket Committee, was to be able to give a, a factual statistical basis for decision making. Mm. I think it's inevitable that people will have memories of particular matches that they've seen. No one can remember every match that takes place. Some people will have memories shaped by certain experiences. Mm. What I do is I provide an annual statistics report for the ICC Cricket Committee that covers a range of topical issues that we need to consider and provides a range of figures so people can see what the trends are in the game. This could cover areas like over rates, in other words is the pace of play being managed appropriately, uh, run rates, so for example in ODI and T20 cricket is there the right balance between bat and ball, um, so for example in 2015 ODI scores were escalating quite rapidly. Teams were getting high 300s, even 400s, and it was felt that we needed to change the balance between bat and ball, and various regulations were changed in order to have more outfielders during the third power play and various other changes. So this was a response to the figures showing the balance wasn't right, and then we adjusted the regulations accordingly. Oh, yeah. Other issues I've looked at recently is the size of home advantage in test cricket. Is the quality of test cricket as a product being lessened by the fact that home teams do tend to win a very large proportion of tests against away teams? Ideally, you'd want all series to be competitive, but actually home advantage seems to be very significant. So I keep an eye on, on how big this home advantage is and what could be done to reduce it. Another topical issue that people will know about is the debate over four or five day test matches. A lot of people prefer the traditional five day test there are some commercial arguments for a four-day test, yeah. and I produce some figures that perhaps gives an idea of what proportion of tests might be drawn if we only had four days rather than five. So overall, I try to provide a, a range of figures to improve the quality of debate and hence the quality of decision-making within the ICC Cricket Committee. That's really fascinating because you hear so much chatter on on media um, about decisions being made and, oh, here's another change and we don't know why. Um, and, and we see um, maybe regulations come out with, with a change and we don't know why. But it's really good to know that it is based on um, statistical information or, or it is um, influenced by statistical information. Well, yes, I would say that statistics has a voice in decision-making processes. Clearly, it's, it's just one component. There will be a number of other factors. Yeah. There will be commercial factors and scheduling and so on. But yes, it's, it's good to know that there is an opportunity for objective numerical research to play a role in decision-making. Yeah, I just... I guess they just don't know, or I include myself in that, that we just don't know what goes on. So, so it's very easy to... Um, cast judgment when, when we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Now, something else that um, sometimes gets bad press that I believe that you um, have an involvement in is the Duckworth-Lewis-Stern calculations. Ah, yes, Duckworth-Lewis. 
this has been part of my life for 24 years so far. Um, created by Frank Duckworth and Tony Lewis in the mid-90s. Sadly, Tony Lewis died mm. a few months ago, he so did. we are just left with Frank Duckworth as the only surviving original creator of this system. It was in, I think, 1996 that Duckworth and Lewis wrote to the TCCB, as was, <laughs> saying that they think they'd come up with a method to sort out how to adjust targets in rain-affected matches. <laughs> now, when they sent this to the TCCB, not surprisingly, it wasn't easy for them to read it because you can't expect cricket officials to be looking at lots of mathematical formulae. So they asked me to have a look at it. And so Duckworth and Lewis came round to my office and we oh. talked about their method. And I was very excited about it because I saw the genius of it. I saw that it, it looked like it could really work. Now, there were a few tweaks and a few flaws and we went through an iterative process over the coming months. But eventually I wrote a note to ICC to say, I think this works, I think it's worth giving it a go. And therefore on the 1st of January 1997, it was used for the first time in an ODI, and England lost that ODI as the umpires took out their sheet when the rain interrupted, saw England were behind on the par score, and that decided the result. It was, it was an interesting experience to seeing something that was just a piece of academic research then actually being used in practice. Wow. Um, and I've been involved with Duckworth Lewis ever since. In 1999, England hosted the World Cup, so it was the first big tournament at which Duckworth Lewis was going to be used. But we needed to make sure that the, the calculations could be done if needed, if there were any interruptions. And this was May and June in England, so every chance that there could be some rain around. <laughs> so Duckworth Lewis and I, between us, the matches were allocated between us, and we, we were there to do the calculations if needed. Fortunately, the weather was pretty good for England and I think only one match was interrupted during the tournament wow. so we pretty much got away with it without having to do lots of calculations but at least it showed that the system could be operated effectively. The next big step for DL was in late 2003 when it was computerized. This was important in two regards. First the method worked much better on a computer because it could be a lot more sophisticated and it could be produce results that were much more realistic than the, the pen and paper version. And the other was by being on a computer, anyone who had access to a computer could enter the figures and get the, uh, the adjusted targets out of the machine, which meant you didn't need to have a mathematician turning up at the ground to do it. If you like, it democratised the use of Duckworth Lewis and made it far more available. You just needed to have someone who could run the programme. So that's pretty much where we've been since 2003. But of course, Patterns, scoring patterns change over the years. The formula that Duckworth and Lewis produced in the mid-90s wouldn't be appropriate now. And so what happens is every two years, the formula is updated to reflect changes in scoring patterns. And what happens is every two years, I'm sent recommendations for what changes need to be made, and I review those recommendations and normally agree as to what needs to be done to tweak the formula and produce an updated version. Yep. Um, this I've been doing every two years since then. Uh, Duckworth and Lewis eventually retired a few years back and handed over their brainchild to an Australian professor, Stephen Stern, yep. and he has taken it forward and he does the work now of maintaining the method. So that's why it's now called Duckworth Lewis Stern. And in fact, it was only a couple of weeks ago I received Stern's report 
showing scoring patterns for the last two years and asking my advice or my support for the proposed updates to the next version of DLS to keep us going for the next two years. Mm. So yes, my work on Duckworth Lewis, now Duckworth Lewis Stern, has uh, kept me busy for well over two decades. So the final uh, involvement that I believe you have uh, with ICC uh, relates to anti-corruption. Are you allowed to tell us anything at all about your work with that? I can tell you about what's already in the public domain and how I first got involved in supporting the work of the anti-corruption unit. This dates back to the 2010 England-Pakistan Test match at Lords. Some of you may remember that in that match there were three no-balls bowled by Mohammed Amir Mohammed Asif to order at a particular time as part of a spot-fixing scam. Mm -hmm. Now, at the time, this was a sting by a newspaper, and the sting was that the player's agent told the undercover reporter that he could arrange that no balls will be bowled at particular moments in time. The agent said, well, if that happens, we'll give you £140,000. The three no balls were duly bowled at exactly the time they were predicted to be bowled, and then the players were exposed for having um, bowled no balls to order during that test match. Now, I was just happened to be the scorer of that match, so I, I scored those three corrupt no balls, and I thought that would be the extent of my involvement in it. But then things took a surprising turn when the UK's Crown Prosecution Service decided to bring criminal charges against the two bowlers, plus the captain, Salman Butt, and they went on trial at Southwark Crown Court, accused of, essentially, of corruption. Now, I was then approached to ask how likely it was that three no-balls would be bowled at exactly the predicted time. Wow. Because what I was told was it was possible the players might say that they had no knowledge of what the agent had said about the timing of the no-balls, and the fact that no-balls were bowled exactly at the times predicted was a complete coincidence, and nothing to do with them, and they had no knowledge of this, this financial arrangement. So what I was asked to do was to determine how likely it was that the timing of the no-balls would be exactly as predicted. Wow. Anyway, I did a lot of calculations. I allowed for the frequency with which the two bowlers bowl no-balls, how often no-balls are bowled in tests at Lords or in tests anywhere <laughs> around the world, and I came to the conclusion the chance you could, ran, you could select correctly the timing of three no-balls was one in one and a half million. That's amazing. So I then had my day in court. The prosecution asked me about the chances and I gave them the results of my figures. I then had the defence barristers challenging me, as is their job of course, so I felt myself in the unusual position of having to defend the accuracy and validity of some cricket statistics in a criminal trial in a Crown Court. Anyway, as you, people will know, the three players were all convicted. Uh, now, I'll never know exactly what role my evidence gave, but the feedback I had was that my evidence was likely to have been very helpful in persuading the jury that the players were indeed bowling nobles to order for money. So that was a, a very interesting experience, um, hopefully not one that I'll be repeating. Um, but I've had a couple of uh, subsequent pieces of work for the anti-corruption unit, and what happens is they will occasionally notice some surprising scoring patterns. And they'll say to me, here are some patterns, this thing happened in this match, how unusual do you think this is? 
So I would give an opinion either to say, you're right, that does look odd. I can see why you'd want to investigate. Or I might say, actually, it's not that unusual. This could happen reasonably often. So the fact that this thing happened in itself wouldn't necessarily be surprising. So occasionally I'm, I'm asked to look at scoring patterns and to give some uh, guidance to the anti-corruption unit as to, as to whether some particular figures look surprising or not. I'm not involved in any of the other work that the anti-corruption unit does. Um, purely I, I sometimes help with uh, some statistical analysis. That is um, an amazing story. Thank you, David. <laughs> um, um, and um, actually, for one person to provide... Um, the whole cricket world with this amount of statistical backup um, is is just wonderful, actually. Um, I, and I just wonder who's who will ever follow you uh, and what will happen when <laughs> you're not able to do that anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's just well, mind blowing, actually. <laughs> Thank you, Sue. That's that's very kind of you. Uh, I certainly I enjoy it. Uh, I've met a lot of interesting people across the game in, in doing all these pieces of statistical work, mm. um, especially on the ICC Cricket Committee. I mean, this committee is full of the, the great and the good of the game. International captains, referees, players, umpires, uh, reporters. Um, I once said that I'm the only member of the ICC Cricket Committee I haven't heard of. Um, <laughs> I, I love the opportunity to be able to influence some of the legends of the game, albeit I've never played the game to any standard. I'm only providing the statistics but I enjoy that I can at least make a contribution in that way. Thank you very much uh, for sharing that uh, information with us today. A fascinating story. Thank you, David. Thanks for that interview, Sue. That was very interesting. So last week we were joined by Mark Long, who posed the question of the week under Ask the Scorer. So, Mark, can you just uh, can you just recap on the question you asked? Yeah. So, briefly, um, it's six bowling over. Nothing happens apart from a single run. Um, I go to my first scorers, tie up the score, and then the bowling team bowl, go to bowl a seventh seventh delivery, and we're like, have we missed something? One of our scorers sees a free hit signal. What do you do? Um, so the conclusion to that is we had a discussion, the three of us, about what do we do here? Do we think it's a no ball, the previous ball? Obviously, we've seen a free hit signal, so that's the obvious conclusion to draw. Um, there's a bit of a gap, and then the pitch vision scorer says, shouts out, basically, was the last ball a no ball? And the umpire <laughs> shouts back at us, yes, it was. <laughs> and so then we all then correct our scorecards appropriately. But... Mm-hmm. That wasn't my personal way I was going to go about it, but one of the other guys decided to go that way, and it turned out quite easily to sort out doing it that way. What was your uh, what was your solution, Mark? I would have probably made a note, though I was scoring on the play cricket app, but I normally have a bit of a notepad with me. Mm-hmm. Made a note when it was, and I've asked, asked the umpires at the next break, or in this situation, we probably only had about five overs the innings to go. At the end, was that a no ball then? And I'd have adjusted my scorecard then. 
Yeah, which innings were you in, the first or the second? The first innings. Oh, that's okay, okay then, because if it was in the second innings, you know, it could have been getting near the end and, and then yeah. the noble uh, could have affected the result. But um, mm-hmm. I think this is a time when walkie-talkies would have been very useful. Uh, I'm not a fan of those in, in league cricket because I think that some scorers then get lazy with their player identification. Um, but the, but it is it is useful to have those for for questions like this. I think Mark, I would have preferred your your solution. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> Rather agreed. than shout out onto the pitch, but but yeah, it sounds as though it, it got it solved. Yeah, I think the motivation, the pitch vision score. I think um, as Jules mentioned last week, it is very hard to correct things <laughs> in that system. <laughs> and his motivation was he was obviously going live out. I need to correct this now. It'll be really useful for me to correct this now. Um, okay. As play cricket users know, it's easier to correct in play cricket. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Good question. And uh, so often scorers get criticised for missing signals and and that sort of thing. But um, I, I usually point out to the umpires at the end um, that uh, they're supposed to keep on signalling until they get an acknowledgement from the scorers. And Absolutely, we we should we should be getting a uh, an acknowledgement from the well recognition, or, or they should carry on signal as you say until the till they see our acknowledgement. Yeah. Don't forget, you can get in contact with us via Twitter at Cricket Scorers One and via email, which is Cricket Scorers Untallied at Gmail dot com. If you want to correspond with anything or ask us any questions, or indeed answer the question which we have for this week using the hashtag Ask the Scorer which Sue has got for us. So my question this week is, in cricketing terms, what is a smudge? Ah, yes, indeed. Well, thanks for that, Sue. We, uh, so if any of our listeners want to uh, answer that for us, please feel free. That's all we've got time for this, this week. So thank you much for listening as always. And it's goodbye from Jules. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Sue. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Sue, as a complete aside, is that a jumper you've got on there? Yes, it's winter. Where'd you get it from? Because I'm actually looking for a lemon jumper like that. And I was just like, oh, hello. Um, it's not all lemon, it's stripy. You're, you can only see the top bit. Oh, hello. Like a lemon slice. <laughs> it's more Le- like lemon- a Neapolitan. <laughs> Le- lemon drizzle. <laughs>